Hey guys, welcome to episode two of Hoops and Endzones. I'm your host, Nick Velasquez, and I'm going to start off by talking about Dak Prescott's hand injury and the Cowboys' um, season going forward here. So, Cowboys owner Jerry Jones confirmed that Dak Prescott will miss multiple weeks after suffering a hand injury that required surgery after his team suffered a 19-3 loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in week one which is pretty bad news for the Cowboys. ESPN's Todd Archer later reported that Dak is going to miss six to eight weeks. He underwent surgery the Monday after the game, according to multiple reports. Jones then told reporters post-game that Dak needed surgery on the joint above his thumb on his throwing hand. Now, keep in mind, he did miss 11 games in 2020 after suffering a compound fracture and a dislocation in his right ankle and one game last season due to a calf strain, and simply chalked up this injury to just a bump in the road, the hand injury to just a bump in the road. So he's had quite a bit of injury history on his resume there. And when a quarterback falls through on a throw, he's in danger of hitting a helmet or hitting a defensive lineman's, uh, hitting a defensive lineman's hand. It's just a hazard of the job that comes with being a quarterback in the NFL. And it's unlucky to do it two straight times and be pretty painful. So Dak had to leave Sunday night's game after hitting his right throwing hand on defensive on a defensive lineman twice in the same fourth quarter drive. And in the middle of the drive, Cooper Rush came on the field while Dak went to the sideline. He was looked at by athletic trainers at his thumb and then jogged back to the locker room. So overall, it was a pretty ugly night for the Cowboys offense and Dak really couldn't get a lot going against Tampa. And losing a game lingers for about a week, but losing your star quarterback to a hand injury is a much harsher blow. And the two days and the two plays where Shaq Barrett hit Dak's hand looked pretty painful, especially the second one where Barrett's right hand hit Dak's thumb pretty hard. And whether or not the Cowboys will want to part ways with any of their assets in a possible trade for another quarterback remains to be seen although it could be their only option to remain in contention this season. By relying on their internal, and their internal options, Dallas is going to be using Cooper Rush as its starter and using Will Greer as their backup. So there's not exactly a lot of upside with either player. And we'll see how Cooper Rush continues to perform this season, but their best option going forward would be to trade for another quarterback if they're going to be in playoff contention this year. Okay, so next I want to talk about um, Andre Iguodala's upcoming decision and why I believe the Warriors need to get him back this upcoming season here. So obviously Andre Iguodala has been a staple for the Warriors throughout their dynasty. He's been an incredible player in that locker room and on the court for them. He's accomplished a lot in his career. He is a four-time champion. He's won... Finals MVP in 2015. He was an NBA All-Star in 2012. He was selected twice to the NBA All-Defensive Team. And he won a gold medal in 2012. His value to the Golden State Warriors resides in his ability to change behavior through his personality and words with players. He's unique in a way that he can command the respect of the Warriors' big three. Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and Draymond Green while also being a mentor to 
the Warriors' young players like Jonathan Kaminga, Moses Moody, James Wiseman, and Jordan Poole. He's nudged Jordan Poole into being more aggressive. He has scolded Jonathan Kaminga for being late to weight training. And now suddenly Kaminga's arriving earlier there. And he's also shared offensive tendencies and defensive tricks with Andrew Wiggins. And now Wiggins is guarding star scorers a lot more effectively. Um, obviously, you saw Andrew Wiggins' defense on Jason Tatum in the NBA Finals there. And that was and that had a lot to do with Andre Iguodala's teachings toward Andrew Wiggins. And, you know, not only toward Wiggins, but also to a lot of the other, other younger players and how they've kind of been like a sponge with Iguodala and they've kind of taken his teachings and applied it with their encore play there. Uh, Iguodala is still still contemplating whether to return to the Warriors or to retire. Um, We know that a declaration is expected soon and that news is likely going to come on his podcast called Point Forward that he does with Evan, um, Evan Turner there. And the Warriors have made their desire clear. They want Andre Iguodala back for next season. Steve Kerr and Steph Curry have campaigned for him to return. The front office is keeping a 14th roster spot vacant until he fills it or declines it. And that reveals plenty about his perceived worth even in his 19th NBA season. Uh, Steph Curry and Steve Kerr in particular, the two people who know the inner workings of of a successful Warriors team, probably better than just about anyone there, hold a pretty solid belief that having Iguodala fill a roster spot, even if he doesn't even play a single minute next season, provides far more winning value than anyone else they can find on a veteran minimum deal. Iguodala has stated his lack of interest in coaching. He, he's, he's, got no, he's got no desire to be an assistant coach or a head coach, although I do believe he would be a very good head coach if he decided to do that. Uh, his post-career opportunities extend past the game, and he appears pretty intent on exploring them once his playing days are over and he decides to hang up the shoes there. Um, so the only way for the Warriors to keep him around the team daily is through a roster spot. And the Miami Heat have done it for years with Udonis Haslam there. Uh, Udonis Haslam was drafted in... Um, I believe it was 2000, either 2002 or 2003, and he's been with the Miami Heat since. So, yeah, he's, I mean, he, he's probably the, I'm not sure if he's the, I don't know if he's the oldest player in the league. I think he, Haslam is the oldest player in the league, but he has been on the Miami Heat. Um, he, I think he's the only player in the NBA who's been on the team, like has been on, has been on a single team that long right now, as far as, you know, active players go. So, but there is a big difference between Haslam's situation and Iguodala's situation. Haslam, even when physically able, is never a part of the Miami Heat's rotation. He hasn't been for roughly half a decade now. He occupies a roster spot, but fully embraces being an assistant coach to that team. Iguodala, on the other hand, has previously expressed an intention to lead the game when he can no longer play it. And as recently as last season, he has remained an effective rotation option for them and a great two-way player during the 38 games that he was active last season. He played a key role in several of the Warriors' best road wins last year. He was great during an open and during an opening night win in Staples Center over the Lakers, where he had 12 points, two blocks, and a game-stealing steal 
uh, Jalen Brown in Boston and even in a comeback win in Utah without Draymond Green. He had a pair of three da- uh, uh, he had a pair of dagger three pointers after spreading around eight assists in that game there against Utah. Um, Iguodala has said, quote, they've dumbed down the game for me a lot. So even if the body's not where I want it to be, I can exist out there without being a liability to the team. But the nagging injuries have piled up. He has had his right knee drained repeatedly in the early portion of the season. A hip issue has popped up. His back began bothering him. And in the playoffs, he just couldn't seem to get past a neck problem that made it difficult for him to turn his head. He further stated that it's like cancer spreading to different areas. Small things, nerve damage here, bulging disc there. The pieces never really come quite together. One area will feel really good, and then another area hurts the next day, and you're starting over with your rehab. It's frustrating. That's to quote Ikadala. Um, At some point shortly, he's going to have to decide whether it's worth to put his body through another NBA season or not. The, Warrior, the Warriors do have some flexibility at the back end of their roster there. They've there's a strong possibility that they leave their 15th spot vacant for tax saving purposes, or it could theoretically go to Iguodal later in the season. Uh, they once signed a, you know, they once signed Andrew Bogut in the 2019 season in March for that playoff run there. So they could, they could look to get a veteran that way, but you know, we'll see how, we'll see how the buyout market plays out for the Warriors, it's it's likely that they could use that 15th spot to fill out that 15th roster spot if Iguodala decides not to return to the team this year. So maybe, but maybe the situation isn't as pressing as it appears. But the Warriors are 10 days from training camp and they have to decide which way to pivot if Iguodala isn't going to be around. So they've had some recent veteran workouts with guys like Ben McLemore, Kenneth Reed, Rondé Hollis Jefferson, and that, it, that that's a pretty early indication about their thinking, and maybe and and maybe they're leaning toward the idea that Iguodala may in fact retire there. But the Warriors already have plenty of youth filling out the back end of their roster. There, um, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, Wiseman, Kaminga, uh, Moses Moody, Patrick Baldwin Jr., Ryan Rollins are all. 21 or under with minimal or no NBA starting experience. So without Iguodala, it might be wisest to add his experience into the mix there. However, uh, the veterans, you know, like McLemore, Fareed, Hollis Jefferson, and even Alfred Payton, that the, you know, the four guys that they're working out in the facility right now to fill out the back end of their roster um, could be pretty good assets for them. Um, but to me, if, if one of those guys, if one of those four guys had to replace Iguodala, I would likely choose Rondé Hollis Jefferson just because he's a terrific defender. He's, he can score on the other end as needed and he's a multi-positional wing and he best fits what Iguodala can do on the floor as far as his on-court mold. But nonetheless, there's nobody that delivers to the Warriors, what Iguodala does off the court and on the court, you know, in the locker room, on the sideline, during plane rides or in news conferences. And that's why they're looking to bring him back for another season. And hopefully he will come back for another season because that title defense 
will undoubtedly be much easier with him in the fold. So he can be that uh, that sponge, that continue to be that sponge for the younger guys and be kind of that voice of reason in their ear and just overall be that veteran leader that the Warriors that the Warriors need to have on the back end of their roster here. So next I want to talk about the Sacramento Kings season outlook and the Mike Brown hiring in particular. So Mike Brown was formerly introduced as the Kings new head coach just one day after celebrating the Warriors fourth championship in eight years with a victory parade through Market Street in San Francisco. Uh, Brown's going to be tasked with ending the league's longest playoff drought ever at 16 years. They haven't made the playoffs since 2006, which is, of course, a very long time. He takes over for the Warriors' top assistant, Luke Walton, who was hired by the Kings away from the Warriors in 2019 before his firing last November. And then Alvin Gentry took over on an interim basis before the Kings finished with a 30-52 and record there. The Kings' winning percentage has been 36.6%, which was at its worst since the 2017-2018 season. So Mike Brown's determined to build a consistent winner there up in the state capitol. He's previously had two stints as the Cavaliers' head coach, where he guided the Cavs to the finals in 2007 and then coached the Lakers for a, a brief, um, for a brief stint there. So since moving to Sacramento in 1985, the Kings have only had one stretch of success, making the playoffs in all eight seasons under coach Rick Adelman from 1999 to 2006. Adelman was fired in 2006 and remains the only coach in the Sacramento era to post a winning record in any season. And I felt like he was really shut out the door at that at that uh, time there because uh, Joe and Gavin Maloof kind of rubbed in the wrong way by pursuing Phil Jackson, and that kind of just turned into a quagmire. And I was just, it was just sad to see the way that it ended. But that's a topic for another day. Um, so now they're hoping Mike Brown can right the ship and turn them into a contender again. The Kings have made some pretty solid moves this year by trading for DeMontis Sabonis, who was an all-star center for the Pacers before he got traded there. And they also traded for Kevin Herter, who was a solid starter for the Atlanta Hawks last season, averaging Atlanta um, 11 points, 3.5 rebounds, and 3 assists. And then also signing Malik Monk to be their sixth man, who was one of the few bright spots for the Lakers last season, where he averaged... 13 points, 3 rebounds, and 3 assists. Um, however, the Kings still find themselves in a pretty awkward position, having hired a coach that the team is hoping to change his approach here in his 23rd year working as a coach in the NBA in some capacity. Uh, Brown spent the last six seasons as, a, as an assistant coach, as the top assistant coach here for the Warriors, and... As so happen, as so often happens, the Kings are hoping that some of the magic um, of offensive elixirs that mark the Warriors' success will have rubbed off on Brown. And we've seen this uh, aspiration this past season before with Luke Walton and Alvin Gentry. Both had their credentials bolstered by working as the lead assistant to Steve Kerr and the Warriors during their championship run here. Neither bought any of the Golden State Warriors enchantment. <laughs> 
along with the two subsequent coaching jobs, uh, so to say. Uh, Walton went 166 and 241 in six seasons with the Lakers and the Kings after serving under Steve Kerr. And Gentry went 199 and 266 in six years with the Pelicans and the Kings. And Mike Brown likes to play a slow, deliberate game that can be won with very good defense and decent enough offense. And in some instances, that philosophy does make sense. However, for the Kings, it does not. Um, This is a team that has at its core a very young star point guard in De'Aaron Fox, whose game is built on speed and needs to play in an offense that recognizes that. DeMontis Sabonis is an impressive offensive player with a varied game, but not a player that fits very well with the style of defense that Mike Brown has employed in the past. So as far as the ability that Brown will be able to advance his career in his upcoming tenure with the Kings, it's really going to come down to two things here. Uh, The first thing is that he must have learned and grown from his previous stints there with the Cavs and Lakers and, and other coaching stints, so to speak. Um, LeBron James, back when Mike Brown was there, wanted Mike Brown fired from the Cavs after they went 66-16 and 16 in the 2008-2009 season because he felt that Mike Brown's offense was too simplistic. It was too easy to defend in the playoffs, and he felt like there just needed to be a change there. Uh, 13 years later... Brown's got to bring a bigger, more intricate playbook um, to Sacramento or bring in an offensive-minded coach who can do that. Uh, he must be willing, he, he's got to be willing to have his team run more to push the pace and to take advantage of the roster's young legs there. And then the second thing is that it's up to GM Monte McNair to give Brown the kind of roster that could play the level of defense that he wants to play. The Kings really don't have to give up on their on their offensive aspirations to do so, but in there there is some defensive promise in the group, assuming that the team keeps, um, you know, or rather develops back backup point man Davian Mitchell there, and keeping Rashawn Holmes healthy would also help too. So, no matter the coach the Kings hire, they badly need defensive help. They gave up 66.8% shooting in a restricted area. Twenty, They were 26 in the league, according to NBA.com stats. They were 37% from the three-point line, which is which was 29th in the, in the NBA, and that's pretty bad. That's the second worst in the league. Also, they don't defend the rim, and they don't defend the perimeter. They're mediocre at forcing turnovers. They were 16th in the league at forcing turnovers, which was only 13 turnovers a game. And they're not very effective on the fast break. We're the only average a little over 18 points per game. That's 19th in the NBA. These are things that Mike Brown has to change there. So he's going to need help from Monte McNair, who needs to supply him with one or two better individual defenders. And Brown's going to need to employ a system that creates and and takes advantage of more turnovers with transition points. Um, Furthermore, he's going to need to change the approach he established at previous stops with the Cavs and the Lakers. He's going to need to show that he's learned 
a few things working with the Warriors under Steve Kerr and that he's not the same coach he was when his career flamed out after one season of his second stint with the Cavaliers. Mike Brown's teams, you know, let's be honest. Mike Brown's teams have always been slow, deliberate, and defensive-minded. This team needs to be quick, decisive, and versatile, and he needs to get the Kings to that level if they're going to be successful. Um, Overall, Mike Brown has a very strong pedigree, um, but it's not a very, it's not, it's not a terribly exciting option. Um, A coach with Brown's resume is considered a mid-tier option in this pool, I believe. Uh, Personally, I'd rather, I'd have him below Mike D'Antoni, but I would put him above other first-time options like Darvin Ham, Will Hardy, and Charles Lee, just because Mike Brown has been there and done that with different franchises in the NBA. So Mike Brown isn't a splash hiring, but at the same time, I don't think it's a terrible hiring either. A terrible hiring either. But he does have a lot of work to do. And um, you know, we'll see, you know, we'll see how Monte McNair can construct the roster up there, and we'll see uh what kind of schemes Mike Brown will implement for that Kings team. All right, so now I'm going to talk about the the Robert Sarver story. I am going to give some background on this first, and then I'm going to go uh, right into my take about this. So let's st- let's start with this. So on September 13th, the NBA announced a one-year suspension and a $10 million fine for Phoenix Suns and Mercury owner Robert Sarver after a lengthy independent investigation into uh, workplace misconduct allegations were done. ESPN's Baxter Holmes is the one who broke the story back in November of 2021, and the NBA launched an investigation into the Suns organization and interviewed more than 70 current and former Suns employees that revealed a history of alleged racially insensitive language, misogynistic behavior, and hostile workplace misconduct. The law firm that the league hired uh, did an investigation and that featured over 300 interviews and the review of more than 80,000 documents and other materials, including emails, text messages, and videos, which formulated into a 43-page report that was made public in coordination with the NBA news release. The investigation revealed key findings here as laid out in the report four key findings so the first one was this the first finding was that sarver said the n-word at least five times in repeating or or purporting to repeat what a black person said four of those after being told by a black and white subordinates that he should not use that word even in repetition even in repetition of another uh the first time he used it was in a 2004 free agent recruitment pitch the second time he used it was during a team building exercise in either 2012 or 2013. The third time was after a 2016 regular season game loss to the Golden State Warriors and used it at least two more times in recounting an incident involving a player's family member, despite being warned on multiple occasions, including the first such instance, that he could never say the N-word, even when quoting someone else or telling a story. The second finding was that Sarver used language and engaged in conduct demeaning of female employees. Among other examples, he told a pregnant employee that she would not be able to do her job 
upon becoming a mother and he even threatened that pregnant employee's role in the organization because her quote baby needs their mom not their father and then convened a meeting with a lawyer who informed the employee that the owner had done nothing wrong he berated a female employee in front of others and then commented that women cry too much there were at least six contemporaneous emails confirming this which he was screaming at this female employee and brought her to tears to which then he responded why do all women around here cry so much and then he arranged a all-female lunch so that employees so that female employees at western bank alliance which was a bank that he served as ceo at the time could explain to female sons employees how to handle his demands specifically urging his employees at that bank to inform members of the sons organization how to handle his demands and not and you know not to cry so much the third finding was that sarver commented and made jokes frequently to employees in large and small settings about sex and sex-related anatomy including by making crude or otherwise inappropriate comments about the physical appearance and bodies of female employees and other women eight witnesses attested to crude statements about the son's dancers he also allegedly commented on an employee's breast augmentation and in more than i think yeah it looks like more than 10 witnesses attested to similar incidents and on four occasions sarver did engage in workplace inappropriate physical conduct toward male employees at one point he even sent a pornographic picture to males employees of his genitalia and uh in this picture look apparently this picture exposes genitals to the male employee who was on his niece and then the fourth and last finding was that over 50 current and former employees reported that sarver frequently engaged in demeaning and harsh treatment of employees including by yelling and cursing at them and on occasion that constituted bullying under workplace standards so the terms of the suspension banned sarver from entering any mba or any wmba facility for one year and during that time he can't attend board of governors meetings he can't represent his teams in any capacity he cannot influence any business or basketball decisions or attend any league affiliated event including business partner activities and the commissioner says the findings are troubling and disappointing but believe the outcome is the right one sarver's punishment falls between two other penalties here in in the nba in league history here um the first one was donald sterling the infamous donald sterling incident when the nba banned him in 2014 former clippers owner donald sterling in 2014 for life and fined him 2.5 million once recordings of his racist remarks were made public where he infamously told you know his his girlfriend at the time why she was hanging around black people and that he didn't want black people coming to clippers home games and sterling had previously faced several dis discriminatory lawsuits which included the largest housing discrimination settlement in american history as well and then this other one was uh in 2018 when dallas mavericks owner mark cuban agreed to donate 10 million dollars to organizations committed to combating domestic violence and supporting the professional development of women in sports 
after an investigation confirmed allegations of widespread sexual harassment and workplace misconduct in the organization. So, and Cuban was not suspended for presiding over a systematic failure to protect his employees. So, even though Cuban wasn't doing the harassment, he was well aware of it there. So, Sarver had this to say in regards to his punishment. Quote, Good leadership requires accountability. For the Suns and Mercury organizations, that begins with me. While I disagree with some of the particulars of the NBA's report, I would like to apologize for my words and actions that offended our employees. I take full responsibility for what I have done. I am sorry for causing this pain, and these errors in judgment are not consistent with my personal philosophy or my values. I accept the consequences of the NBA's decision. Now let me get to my opinion on this. And this is and this is a very um this is a very big subject for me. So um apologize in advance if I get a little bit, you know, heated here. But he should be banned. You know, I don't care about the owner's vote. There's no excuse. He should be banned and then he should figure out if he wants to go to the game or not. Now, Donald Sterling was banned for life as punishment when he made those racially charged comments, but he was not forced to sell the team. His wife, Shelly Sterling, sold the team because the advertisers and the, and the sponsors had pulled their money from sponsoring the Clippers. So it's going to be interesting to see if the advertisers and sponsors pull their money out from the Phoenix Suns, which I hope they do. And you can't make the argument that the culture Robert Sarver created in the Suns organization won't adversely affect the team's current employees. Dozens, dozens of the employees chose not to not to come forward before Baxter Holmes from ESPN broke this story about the team's toxic conditions. And a lot of them feared repercussions if they did. So there's no telling how they would respond if Sarver's behavior is allowed to persist when he comes back from from his suspension. And that is if he's allowed to come back from his suspension, especially now that he's only going to face a fine of roughly. 0.5% of his team's valuation in, in lieu of losing his ownership stake. And I like Adam Silver and the things he's done so far. And he's been a great commissioner since he came in here. But shame on him for giving him this lenient punishment here. I mean, he could have done way better than this. And I don't see how you ban Donald Sterling for life and only give Robert Sarling only a one-year ban. Like, that makes no damn sense whatsoever. Also, shame on the rest of the NBA owners for not taking a vote on banning him lifetime from the league. And maybe that's out of fear for how Sarver would retaliate against the rest of the league owners. Because Robert Sarver could be like, oh, you have a problem with that? You know, you think what I did was bad? Let me show you the press and the different media outlets like ESPN and Fox Sports, what else I know. Let me show them what skeletons you have in your closet. And considering the person that Sarver is, I definitely wouldn't put that beneath him because if he has no shame doing all the stuff that he did toward the Suns employees, then he, he then I don't think he would certainly have a problem with stooping to doing dirty tricks and and blackmailing and threatening the other NBA owners like that. So Nevertheless, he has no business of being the Suns owner after these allegations, ever. 
you know, he should never be allowed back in the league again. Like you can't, you can't have a guy like that on an NBA team. Like uh, it's just, it's like, why would you want to work for somebody like that? You know, I'm also curious to see what Chris Paul and the Suns players will do once the NBA season starts. Back when Donald Sterling made those racial remarks, Chris Paul and the Clippers, if people, if some of the diehard basketball fans remember, Chris Paul and the Clippers took off their warm-up jerseys and threw them on center court, which, you know, pretty much did nothing at the time there, but it did increase public pressure. So this time it's going to be interesting to see what the Suns players like Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton do once the NBA season starts. But Sarver has to simply go. And I really do hope the Suns players make a stand on this because clearly the commissioner is not bold enough to give a severe punishment to Sarver for his actions on this. And the Suns players decide to do something bold, such as not play at all by refusing to come out of the locker room or refusing to come out of the arena or at least speak out on this incident because this issue is too important to just sweep under the rug. And well, actually it looks like Chris Paul did speak out on it, but I, I think more Suns players should speak out on this because this is this is a pretty shattering story and you can't just you can't stay silent on this kind of stuff here so and i'm glad chris paul did this because he does have he does have a big voice in the nba players union there so the suns players decide to you know take it a step further and not play then maybe the nba increases their punishment and decides to give sarver a, a longer ban for this and you know, however, I'm not holding my breath on it. I think the best way to get Sarver banned is to increase the public pressure on the commissioner and the owners. And I hope that I hope that the Suns players refusing to play does that. Like I do hope that does increase the public pressure, but you know, it remains to be seen what what they're gonna do regarding this. Because like I said, Adam Silver gave Donald Sterling a lifetime ban because of the public pressure. And if the public pressure has increased exponentially on Adam Silver and the rest of the NBA owners regarding Sarver's ban, then I think 100% he will receive a lifetime ban for this. But either way, Sarver should be banned for life for all the misogynistic, racist, and bigot-like behavior he's expressed over the past few years during his time as the Phoenix Suns owner. It's sickening to see this. Like... <sighs> Is Robert Sarver really somebody the league wants representing them? Like, should we all be asking why three quarters of NBA team owners are not on record in opposition to his abuse of power, if not for the fear of losing their own? You know, give me your comments below on this, because I'd love to hear what you guys had to say on this story. It, it, it's simply maddening and disheartening and to hear all this. And I hope that I hope this I hope that he's never allowed in the NBA again and that they can come to a more uh a severe punishment for, for this guy here. Cause like I said, this guy you can't have somebody like this representing an NBA team. It's just we we've evolved we've evolved uh as a society and you know, this can't be tolerated anymore. So now I want to talk about the week two game between the 49ers and the Seahawks. 
And I'm going to start with the Seahawks here. So Geno Smith completed 80% of his pass attempts and Tyler Lockett finished with 107 yards. But by looking at the box score and even the final score, you would have never thought that this occurred. The Seahawks converted on just two third downs and committed nine penalties. Six of those penalties give to the 49ers a first down. And while Geno was, effect- was effective in his attempts to completion ratio, which was 24 for 30 for 197 yards, one interception, and no touchdowns, he's not the type of quarterback who is going to dig you out of a hole like the one they dug for themselves today. This offense didn't even score a single point today, and that's pretty disturbing for Seattle there. Getting behind the way the Seahawks did basically eliminated the run game, which they've been super excited to lean on going into this season. They ha- they only had 12 combined carries for 34 yards from their running backs, which is abysmal. The, the run defense was a concern in week one for the Seahawks, and that basically continued in week two here. <laughs> Though this time 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan simply recognized what the Broncos were doing and what they weren't doing correctly. And the 49ers finished with 189 total rushing yards in a game in a season that the Seahawks thought was going to be about them establishing the run game. And they only picked up 36 total yards on the ground in week two. The Seahawks also had 10 penalties for 106 yards. That's pretty undisciplined play to say the least. And like I said in last week's episode with the 49ers play against the Bears, if you commit roughly 10 to 11 penalties for roughly 100 yards, you're not going to win a lot of football games in this league. And while Seattle's defense in the red zone has been solid in the first two games, it continued to get picked apart between the 20s and is spending way too much time on the field. The Seahawks lost the time of possession battle 38 minutes and 20 seconds to 21 minutes and 40 seconds. That's almost a difference of 17 minutes. 17 extra minutes for the 49ers offense versus the Seahawks offense. They did have a great special teams play courtesy of Tariq Woolen blocking that Robbie Gold field goal and doing an 86-yard scoop and score by Michael Jackson. But the bottom line is that this is a very young and experienced team. So the uneven play is going to be pretty prominent until these guys get comfortable and the coaching staff learns the strengths and the weaknesses of this Seahawks squad and are able to game plan for them accordingly. So now let me get to the 49ers. They played a great game all around. Their defense was led by Nick Bosa, who has been a total animal for them this year, who had four quarterback hurries, two sacks, and a quarterback hit. Their special teams were solid, despite the blocked kick and return that Seattle had in the third quarter there. And the 49ers offensive line only allowed nine total pressures on 36 pass blocking snaps and didn't give up a single sack to the Seahawks. Their unit finished with a 78.8 pass blocking grade, according to PFF.com, which isn't incredible, but it is solid nonetheless. And speaking of offense, I feel extremely gutted for Trey Lance. He took a lot of undeserved criticism last week and was off to a pretty nice start today until he suffered that terrible injury and had to be carted off. Kyle Shanahan later confirmed that Trey Lance had suffered a broken ankle and will require season-ending surgery. So it really sucks to see this because I was looking forward to seeing Trey Lance take off this year and potentially win the 49ers their sixth Lombardi trophy. Now they're going to have to wait another season before we can see the best that Trey Lance can bring to this squad here. 
simultaneously, they made a pretty smart move by keeping Jimmy Garoppolo around for another season. They would have been in a very precarious situation if they had cut or traded Jimmy G and had Nate Subfeld as their backup to Trey instead of him. So it felt really good to see Jimmy G back out there under center for the 49ers. And keep in mind, he spent most of the offseason recovering from shoulder surgery and didn't participate in team meetings or even have a playbook until assigning a restructured one-year deal just before the start of the season. And because he was the team's backup quarterback, he didn't even get that many practice reps or the last couple of weeks. So Sunday was his first real action since last season's NFC Championship game. However, it won't really matter much because he's been the 49er star for the past four and a half seasons. So he's pretty comfortable with the offense and he knows the playbook like the back of his hand. What I'm concerned about is that Kyle Shanahan's playbook won't be as big now, now that Jimmy G's back at the helm there. And the quarterback running plays will be used very little to none because Jimmy G is simply not a running quarterback. And while that may open more plays via the pass, it's going to be up to Jimmy and his offensive line to take the next steps for them. Because we know what the receivers are going to do, especially with Brandon Ayuk making a big step this year and Debo Samuel and Jawan Jennings making plays for them as well. So it's going to boil down to Jimmy G's quarterback play and his consistent poise in the pocket, not getting shaken, not seeing ghosts whenever he feels like the pocket is starting to collapse, getting rid of the ball and making consistent, crisp, accurate passes at the right time. And for the offensive line, it's just it's just simply going to come down to more reps and more experience. And I mentioned in my last episode that losing Tomlinson and Mack this offseason really hurt them. But if they continue to play like they did today, they will be good enough to help make this team help help this team make a deep playoff run. So let me know your thoughts and reactions in the comment section below and be on the lookout for episode three, which will be posted in the next one to two weeks. Cheers. Have a good one.